probably thinking, what am I doing here? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'm here because uh, my wife said I could come and preach, and I've been preparing all week, and um, her parents are with her, and are with Teddy, and so I'm going to be with you just for a moment, and preach God's word, and then I'm leaving, okay? So, because um, uh, if I, if I over, I'll, I'll overstay my welcome basically, if I say any longer than that. So, uh, thank you so much for your encouragement and your prayers. Thank you so much for, for asking. Uh, I'm sorry that maybe I didn't do a great job of giving details on the, on the fly, but, uh, uh, but uh, God is good, and the baby is healthy. Lisa is healthy. Lisa was actually had the flu yesterday, and uh, was such a sport and uh, pushed hard um, while she had the flu, uh, bless her heart. Uh, but the baby doesn't have the flu, and um, Lisa's feeling better today. And so thank you also for praying for her health, for those who didn't know. Um, so we are going to kind of continue our series in, with marriage. Um, and to um, be, if, you know, as, a, as someone who has now been in ministry for quite a few years, when you get into these opportunities to preach, especially preach about marriage, typically, when you, if you've ever been to a, a wedding, most of the common sermons are common verses that are used on marriage is Genesis 1 and 2, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, um, maybe a few other, like, uh, I don't understand, but some people at churches will read Ruth, even though that has nothing to do with uh, marriage, it's, uh, it's an in-law relationship. So I always thought that weird, that they, they would use that verse to talk about marriage when it's an in-law relationship. Um, so we're not doing Ruth or anything like that. But, um, but So you're going to find this a little odd, what we're going to be <coughs> preaching through today. We're going to be preaching through 1 Kings, and we're going to be focusing on Ahab and Jezebel's marriage. And if you don't know much about these two characters from the Bible, they're not good characters. If you want to say they're evil characters or bad characters or ungodly characters, is you may be asking, why are we focusing on their marriage? Because I think you can learn a lot about, you can learn from the sins of fellow humans. You can learn from the, the sins of marriages from history. And so we're going to be learning a lot from their mistakes and their poor thinking and, and their ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we're going to kind of learn and glean from them. And uh, I'm going to read, though, just to kind of get us started. First Kings chapter 21 and verse 1 through 16. First Kings 21. Now Naboth the Jezreel had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreel said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And Ahab said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite. And said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you know you govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth to Jezreel. 
So she wrote letters to Ahab in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in, the city, in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed the fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As, Je as, Je as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And he refused to give, for he refused to give you money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth to take possession of it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray, Lord, as we read your word, as we study your word, as we learn from your word, Lord, teach us, Lord. Teach us what not to do. Lord, teach us, Lord, to be people who are devoted, devoted to your kingdom, not our own kingdom. Lord, I pray for those who are sick, Lord, who are struggling with the flu and other sicknesses. Lord, please, Lord, I pray that you would bring them back to health. For those who are traveling, for those who are out, Lord, I pray for them as well. Pray for those who are dealing with relational struggles, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would bring peace into chaos. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are worshiping you, Lord, and during, under extreme persecution. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, I pray that you would give them perseverance and endurance, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, as believers who live in a pretty peaceful land, Lord, how to have strength, how to have perseverance, how to stand firm in the faith in all situations, Lord. Lord, we love you we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're taught as, as children, I mean, when I grew up in the 90s watching Disney movies, we're taught, based on watching Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Aladdin and Lion King, all, all these movies that have, even movies with animals still have this princess and prince kind of theme going on in the story. At the end of the story, what are we always told? Happily ever after, right? That life, after this, typically in some of these movies, it's always a marriage, right? The movie ends with a marriage, and then they enter into happily ever after. As if, once you get married, once you've entered into this portal, once you've found your prince or princess, your life is now complete. Your life is now ha ha happy ever after. But that's not how life is, is it? I mean, we would love to get the sequel, the real-life sequel, to the Cinderella story, right? We would like to, to get the real-life story, the sequel of Snow White. There's actually some uh, uh, people, some creative people who have done paintings or photography of what life in real life is like for Snow White or Cinderella with like four or five kids, right? And her husband's like sitting on the couch like looking at his phone, right? That's, that's kind of life. Uh, Disney likes to tell you that life is, is perfect once you've found your prince or princess, but that's actually not true. Um, 
I, just to read a little bit of, uh, of Disney, uh, the, the movie Enchanted, which is a great movie, actually, um, where a, a, a character from an animated world comes to the real world, right? And she brings all her peppy kind of uh, optimism into the New York real world, and she meets this man named Robert Phillip who's been divorced and has his child, right? He's raising his child. And uh, uh, the, the princess says to Robert, oh, you have such strange ideas about love, and he says, maybe you should just do what you do. You meet, you have lunch, and you get married. Gazelle said, oh, you forget about happily ever after. Robert Phillips says, forget about happily ever after. It doesn't exist. For some people, we fall into this trap of thinking that once we find our spouse, life will be just happy and blessed. You know, for most of history, people didn't get married falling in love, Right? For most of human history, up until probably the 1800s, you, 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 you married because your parents basically told you who to marry, right? And uh, one, of the, one of the great, I don't know if you've ever watched um, Fiddler on the Roof, but there's a, story, there's a song in Fiddler on the Roof where uh, the two big, big characters are like having this song, and basically they first met when they got married, and they talk about love. He's like, he's like do you love me? And she's like, Goldie's like, do I love you? I mean, I've washed your clothes, I've made your meals, I've took care of your kids, do you love me? We're asking this question. And basically, they basically said we had to learn to love each other. Because they didn't get married falling in love. They had never met before they got married. That was true for most people up until the 1800s when the romanticisms and people would fall in love. People would be romantic and they would fall in love and get married. And that was true up into the 1960s. And when the 1960s happens, that's when we got the happily ever after. That we were finding someone who we could discover ourselves in. Someone who that we could, our self-esteem could be built, or our personal growth could be realized, our dreams could be realized. That we had to find that person to fit that piece of that puzzle to make our lives perfect. The perfect soulmate that will satisfy our every need and desire. The prince who will sweep me off my feet and provide the perfect life. The princess who is gorgeous and lovely and perfect in every way. Mary Poppins always said that she was perfect in every way, right? I mean, we're looking for this person who's perfect in every way. They can marry this certain guy or this certain girl. We can live in this certain place and have these certain kids. I will prosper. The, the, the answer to the question, how do we prosper as people, people are answering that question that if I find the right spouse, I will have a prosperous life. You know these people. For those who are in college, you know these girls, you know these guys who have believed that if they just found the right person while they're in college or wherever, that their life would be perfect. They have these dream lives and these spouses are parts of these dream lives. So the title of this sermon is 10,000 Tyrants Are Worse Than One. And since that, the reason why it's titled that is, is because spouses can be tyrants in their own marriage because their marriage is their own kingdom and their spouse is a part of their kingdom. They are a means to accomplish their kingdom initiative, their kingdom work. Subtitle is, Whose Kingdom Shapes Your Marriage? <coughs> Whose Kingdom Shapes Your Marriage? Kind of a big idea is, a marriage that is shaped by your own dreams and not God's way is impoverished. 
A marriage that is shaped by your own dreams and not God's way is impoverished. So point number one, and we're going to actually go back a little bit. I know I read 21, but we're going to go back to 1 Kings chapter 16. The first point is a marriage for personal welfare. A marriage for personal welfare. So Ahab is the son of the king, Omri. And he was, he, Omri reigned over, well, Ahab reigned over the nation of Israel and Samaria for 22 years. So what, where we come in this story is, is that Israel was its own nation, right? King, David, king Saul was the first king, then there was King David, then there was King Solomon. And King Solomon, basically because of his, his, his wayward heart, because of his sin, because of his worshiping of, of idols, the nation is split into two. You have the northern kingdom, which is there's ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel, and their capital city became Samaria. And, and Ahab's father is the one that built the city of Samaria and made that the capital city of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe that David came from and the tribe that Jesus would eventually come from, and also the tribe of Benjamin were a part of the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was typically more righteous and more uh, obedient to God. And the northern kingdom started bad and was never good. There was never a time in their, in their nation's history, the northern kingdom, where they ever had a king that was holy and righteous towards God. And Ahab was just like these other kings. He was quite wicked. And basically, the history of the northern kingdom was idolatry. When the first king of the northern kingdom was Jeroboam, Jeroboam was a, a, a man who came to the throne. He fled from Egypt. He comes back to Israel. He returns when Solomon has died, and he meets Solomon's son, who's now the new king of Israel named Rehoboam, who then takes the, tr the, the throne. He, he comes to Rehoboam and says, hey, your father was very hard on us. Would you lighten the load? And Rehoboam did the opposite of what he was asked to do. He did the work. He said, because my, my, my father was too light on you, I'm going to be harder on you. And because of that, there was a civil war. There was a revolt. And Jeroboam was the leader of this revolt. And he became the king over the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. The kingdom was divided into two sides. And not only were they divided by boundaries, they were divided by religion. The southern kingdom continued to worship God. They continued to follow the uh, Old Testament, the, I mean the, the wall. The northern kingdom established a new religion. Uh, Jeroboam, the king, built, he had these two calves of gold built and said, these are your gods. He was afraid that if, if they kept the same religion as the southern kingdom, his people would go south and he would lose his throne. So he starts his own religion. He establishes his own gods. He establishes his own temple. He establishes his own priesthood. He establishes his own sacrifices. He establishes his own altar. And he establishes his own feasts. A complete different religion from the religion that was established after Exodus. And Omri, the father of Ahab, builds the city of Samaria, capital city for the northern kingdom and the center of its cultic worship. Omri was remembered as an evil king who did more evil than all who were before him, even more evil than Jeroboam. Ahab, his son, takes the throne after his father's death. And he continues his father's evil practices. The writer in uh, 1 Kings 16 says that he did more than all who were before him, even his own father. And then he says his evil rule was highlighted by his marriage to Jezebel, meaning he was 
It would have been one thing just to be like his father, or it would have been one thing just to be like Jeroboam. He was worth because of who he married. Je Jezebel. Jezebel was a daughter of a, of a pagan king of the Sandeans. She was horrible. I mean, Ahab made the nation of the north bad, but he made it even worse by marrying Jezebel. The decision singles him out as the worst ruler of Israel to this point, which is quite an accomplishment if you read their history. Jezebel, her name, her name, which is interesting, her name means unhusband, which is a bit ironic because she basically is, not, she runs amok in the, in, the, in the entire kingdom. She runs amok in Ahab's court. She does pretty much whatever she wants. Husband means master of the house, and she had no master of the house. Ahab was a horrible husband. Not only was he horrible, he was weak and passive. She had no true husband. So why does Ahab marry Jezebel? It's a great question. Why does he marry her? It was common back then, it's common for a long time, for marriages to be established for political alliances. Which is interesting since he's supposed to be a king of Israel and God clearly and specifically said to Israel not to marry foreign women. But he marries Jezebel for personal welfare. This is a marriage to establish a political alliance with her father's kingdom to fight against the Syrians and the Assyrians. So basically they're afraid of the, these other nations, these other foes. And so he marries Jezebel for protection. When a powerful ruler sent his daughter to be the primary wife of a lesser king or prince, he expected that she would represent his interests in her new husband's household. The ruler of the Sindians saw the marriage arrangement as a way to influence the court in Israel as they became an ally with Israel against the common foe. Ahab turned to, his, turned to the protection of others over God against their enemies, his marriage to Jezebel is one of personal concern and lack of faith in God's protection. If he was being faithful to God, he would never have married her in the first place. The strategy, which is so interesting, is the is Solomon's downfall. And in First uh, Kings chapter three, you may read this particular passage and blow right past it, right? Because you'll get to the wisdom part where. Where Solomon is praised by God for asking for wisdom. And God praises him, right? But what does he do before he asks God for wisdom? He does something quite foolish. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built in the name of of the Lord. What does Solomon do? He marries for personal welfare. He marries to create a political alliance with Egypt. Which is basically what the writer of First Kings is doing is it's, it's telling you off the bat, wait for the wait for the pin to drop, wait for the consequences to arrive because of this decision that he makes. And so interesting about his marriage to the Pharaoh's daughter that he waits such a long time to build the house of the Lord. He actually, when you read the story of Solomon, he spends more time building his own palace than he does actually building the temple. 
His priority, his number one priority is building a house for who? His wife. For him, not a house of the Lord. He even says in verse 3 that the people were sacrificing on high places because they had no house to worship God. Solomon's priorities was to build a palace for himself and for his foreign wife. Which then led to what? More marriages to foreign women, which led to them, him worshiping their gods and then splitting the kingdom in half. The application here is you must not marry out of fear. And for a lot of people, we, people marry out of loneliness, right? They, they, they're, they're single, uh, they're into their 30s. People at church are telling me, like, I wonder when that girl's going to get married. I wonder when that guy's going to get married. You know, if he just find a good husband, if he could just find a good wife, he would be happy. His life would be good. You've heard it before. You may have said it to someone before. What you're doing is, is saying they should get married out of what? Personal welfare and to eliminate fear. When singleness feels unbearable, marrying the one who spared us the fate of eternal loneliness. We marry for security, right? We marry because we need protection. Not trusting in God's protection and God's provision. Not trusting in God's provision and care for us, even in the midst of our loneliness. People marry out of financial benefits. The Middle Ages, marriage was viewed as the most important career decision that you would ever make. Marriage was a path to wealth. If you don't know this, George Washington married Martha. Martha was married. They married because, one of the reasons why they married because she was wealthy. She had money. This was very common back then. Alexander Hamilton married who he married. Why? Because she had money. It was very common. People married for financial benefits. It's a path to wealth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not trusting God to provide for you in your singleness while you seek to marry only in the Lord. Right? He says to marry only in the Lord. You marry someone by following God and trusting in Christ. Marriage was not created to provide you something that God could not provide for you. Marriage was created to reflect the heavenly reality, the heavenly reality of Christ's loving and devoted union with the church. But the reflection is not eternal. I don't know if you realize this, but singleness is uniquely highlighted the church's love and devotion to Christ, seen in the single person's exclusive devotion to Christ. When you see someone who's single, who has yet to be married, basically, when they, when they tell their story, they are completely devoted to Christ. Completely devoted to Christ. Exclusively devoted to Christ. This is something to be honored and praised, not pushed down or discouraged. <coughs> We have to understand that in our singleness, or you are that Christ is sufficient and superior for you. A, a spouse is not going to make your life better. Only Christ, and all you need is Christ. The dependence on God for the fulfillment of your needs and your desires. All our needs and desires are found ultimately in Christ alone, right? Whether you're married or you're single, the answer is the same. That your, your, um, your needs and your desires are found ultimately in Christ. That if you're single, instead of being in fear of your loneliness or looking for marriage as a way to get out of some situation, that we are completely devoted to Christ, that we delight in Christ alone. And realize that our eternal nature is singleness, not marriage. That the future reality is complete devotion to Christ 
in singleness, in the new kingdom, when Christ returns, you will not be married. You will be completely devoted to Christ. You will be completely single. So if you're single today, pray that God would provide a husband or wife for you. But trust in Christ. Trust in his sufficiency. Trust in his, his, his provision in your life. And praise him. He is enough. He is sufficient. God is better than marriage. God is better than a spouse. It would have been better for Ahab and the entire nation of Israel if he had not married Jezebel and simply trusted God to protect them against their enemies. A marriage for personal welfare brought a monster into the king's court. A monster into the king's court. The second point is a marriage for your own kingdom. A marriage for your own kingdom. So Ahab marries Jezebel, which is a mistake. She was a foreign woman. The law was pretty clear. They weren't supposed to marry foreign women who worshipped other gods and worshipped Yahweh. In verse 32 of 16, he marries her and he starts worshipping her gods. Baal. Baal. He then he erects an altar of Baal in the house of Baal. He built a temple for her in the city of Samaria. Ahab makes an asterisk. He provokes the Lord to anger because of his idolatry. He erects a temple for her. He builds these things for her. He marries Jezebel and then builds temples for her worship. Builds an asterisk pole, which is basically a tree for worship. She then allows, he allows all of her prophets to come and dwell in the courts so she can practice her religion. He uses money from the treasury to facilitate idol worship. The worship of Baal and Asherah became state-sponsored and supported. She uses her marriage to Ahab to establish her own kingdom, where her and her people can worship the gods of their making. Laws have also been created in her kingdom. However, there are obstacles to her kingdom that, she, that making initiative. Lawbreakers and troublers abound. They must be dealt with so that the kingdom can be firmly established. And who are these troublers? It's the prophets of God. So what does she do? In chapter, uh, chapter 18, we find out that she has them killed. In verse 4, Ahab called uh, Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. She was killing off priests and prophets of God. So Obadiah, one of the prophets who was actually in the court, was secretly hiding them so that they would be protected from Jezebel. After marrying Ahab and having him establish a religion in the capital, she, brings, she begins to purge her new kingdom of rebels, prophets, prophets of Israel's God. The God who rescued the nation from slavery and provided for them in the wilderness and gave them the land as an inheritance is now an obstacle to her kingdom work. Those who worship him and promoted him and speak for him are now enemies of the state, enemies of Jezebel's kingdom, troublemakers and obstacles to her dream to establish a kingdom in her image. She has prophets of Yahweh killed. Many are hidden by Obadiah and Cain. The passage that says, I think it says in verse 4, that she cut them down. Cut them off, which means she rid them from, she killed them, she destroyed them. 
And in verse 13 of 18, she says, Had it not been told, my Lord, what she did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? She killed them. She had them wiped out. She had them assassinated. She had them whacked. She's like a mob boss, killing her foes. And you know what behind all this? Ahab does nothing to stop it. And what does he do? Do you think she can just do what she wants? No, no, he's the one. She told him what to do, and then he then did it. Hey, dear, I'd like these prophets to be killed. Okay. She send, he sends out the troops to kill them all. And Elijah was public enemy number one. They were searching for him like the others who had been hidden. It even says in verse 19 of 18, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. They are always in the court. Jezebel has opened her court to pro prophets of the false gods while systematically whacking off every prophet of God. Politically cleansing as she establishes her power over the nation like a mob boss, establishing his kingdom and killing off threats to her throne. Well, the story continues where basically Elijah says, hey, I want all these prophets that Jezebel has brought into this nation. I want them all to show up at Mount Carmel and we're going to show, we're going to see who is actually the one serving the one true God. Of course, the story goes that they all come, but not all of them come. Ahab can only bring 450 of them, not all 850. Or only brought 400 of them and didn't bring all 850 of the prophets of Jezebel. And they had this show, right? And they're at the car. Basically, they, they bring a, a, an animal, and basically, they're going to see which god can burn the animal, right? Can consume the animal. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think it's hilarious. Is when Elijah, they're all waiting for the, the prophets of Baal to, to, to kind of get their woo, their God, to show up. And Elijah sits there going, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep. He must be awakened. He's mocking these prophets. Your God doesn't exist. He must be on the toilet. He must be relieving himself. He must be sleeping. Where is he? But then Elijah calls the prophet, calls God, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Like God showed up because he is the Lord. He is God. Amen. And what happens after that? Elijah says, seize all the prophets of Baal. They seized them all. They let any of them escape and they were slaughtered. So Ahab then goes back to his wife Reports to his master, Jezebel's wrath is poured out. She is upset. Why? Because there is an obstacle in her own kingdom. Her kingdom has been attacked. So she promises retaliation. She says, she, she speaks to, um, to Elijah through a messenger. It says, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She basically threatens that I'm coming after you. Because you have attacked my kingdom. Elijah responds in fear to her threats and runs for his life. You're right, you're right, you're right. Hey, what does this have to do with Mary? Jezebel has established a kingdom of her own. And she's using her marriage to establish her own kingdom. 
Her spouse is a vehicle to serve her kingdom purpose. If your marriage serves your life dreams, your spouse must love you as much as you love yourself. So the reason why their relationship must have worked is because Ahab just did exactly what he was told by his wife. <coughs> Everything about their marriage must fit and be shaped to her self-defined world. Her decisions they made, the plans they made, the actions they made. <coughs> our spouses are, can become an obstacle to our kingdom purposes. Our spouses are evaluated according to the laws of our kingdom. Not the laws of God's kingdom, but the laws of our own kingdom. And if they fail to follow the laws of the kingdom, you become angry. Your wrath is poured out on those who are obstacles of your kingdom. Because they have broken the laws. When you treat your marriage and your spouse as the missing piece of the dream puzzle, they will eventually disappoint you or fail to reach your expectations. They will fail to follow your law. What are you doing in this situation? You're dehumanizing them. You're saying you're not an actual equal person. You are a vehicle to do what I want and to establish my dream and to establish my kingdom. And as long as you go along with the ride on that, we'll be fine. But any day that you... Break my law, there will be wrath and anger against. You become simply means to your dream life. You're a prince to complete your life. You're a princess to complete your dream. These are pawns, and all pawns have flaws. Your dream will be most would definitely be destroyed because your spouse is a sinner. You have to ask yourself, do you truly love your spouse or do you love yourself? Do you desire marriage with someone who's equally fallen, like yourself? And is that a means to your dream life? Or do you desire simply to have your kingdom come? I think there are many people, and I'm just going to say this directly, who truly do not love the person they married. They actually never love them. Why? They love their kingdom. They love themselves. And their spouse is simply a puzzle piece in their kingdom. You're attracted to what that person could offer your kingdom, but attractfulness or being attracted to someone else, that will wane. That will wane. Your, the flaws become apparent. The dream dies. They believe they have fallen out of love, when in actuality they were never in love. It just didn't fit their kingdom initiative. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us because we have conducted this, that once one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We no longer live for ourselves. Amen. Your identity, your value, your purpose, your inner sense of well-being is no longer defined <coughs> by your living your dream life. Getting everything that you ever wanted, living happily ever after, having the perfect marriage with the perfect spouse, living in the perfect house with the perfect kids, because none of that is real. None of it is real. Why? Because you have flawed kids. You live in the fallen world. You have fallen spouses, therefore you will have a fallen marriage or flawed marriage. Your bondage to yourself is over. Christ has freed us from ourselves to no longer live for ourselves. The reality is you married a flawed person, you live in a broken world, and Christ has won us victory and redemption and hope and joy in the midst of a flawed marriage in a broken world. Stop trying to build a variety of time, but a marriage for personal prosperity. 
Going to, to 1 Kings chapter 21, right? This story, this simple, this interesting story where basically Ahab wants his vineyard and tries to go to Naboth about buying this vineyard. He refuses Ahab's offer, which shows the complete ignorance of Ahab towards God's law, right? Because God had inherited that land to Naboth's family. And Naboth says, like, God gave this to my fathers. I'm not supposed to sell it to you. Because God has given it to me and to our family as an inheritance. Do you not remember this? Are you so out of depth here? Do you not know God's law at all? Because the, God commanded the people not to sell the land. Why? Because it was never the plan of God for a few to own all the lands. So Ahab was doing something that was unlawful from God. And he wanted to turn it into a vegetable garden. Which God actually compares Egypt to a vegetable garden and Israel to a vineyard. And he wants to transfer a vineyard to a vegetable garden. Just showing how wicked and how ignorant he is of God. And Jezebel says, no, 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 no. Are you not a man? Are you not a king? You show up, right? He's like, you're a king. Just take what you want. And she says, okay, I'll take care of this, Right? And what does she do? She sends letters in Ahab's name. She seals them with his seal. She sends these letters to have Naboth killed so that her husband can take the vineyard. Ahab does nothing to stop her. And what does she say to Ahab? She says, arise. Take possession of your vineyard. Take possession of what is yours. Which is such an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? I don't know if you've caught this. So basically, Jezebel has established her kingdom in opposition to God, and now they're stealing the land that belongs to God. They're stealing it. God commanded his people to do what? To arise and take the land, to take their possession that God had provided. And now Jezebel tells Ahab to rise and take the land that God has given to Naboth's family. Jezebel has set herself up as an actual god and tells her little pawn to go and take your land. I have won you victory over this land. I have given you this land. Go and take. Seeking gratification of herself, even to the point of having an innocent man killed to obtain a vineyard for her weak husband. Marriage for her is getting what she wants regardless of the situation. Marriage isn't about attaining whatever you desire. Finding the ideal person so that you can fulfill all your dreams, reaching your personal life goals, obtaining your best life, rather is the unity of two people who sacrifice their individual dreams to devote themselves together to bring God's kingdom to earth. Not to establish your own kingdom on earth, but to establish and to bring in God's kingdom to earth. I want to end with this. A marriage for God's kingdom comes. His will be done. Every couple, before they get married, should read that prayer and pray it together and say, Our marriage, may your kingdom come. Not my kingdom, not our kingdom, but your kingdom. Your will be done, not my will be done. But too often, couples who are supposedly Christian, they come into their marriage thinking, My kingdom come, my will be done, not God's. It's exactly what Jezebel did. It's exactly what Ahab and Jezebel's story tells. They established their own kingdom in opposition to God. Their marriage was about their will and their kingdom and not his. 
It's hallowed be your name, not our name, not glory to our name, not glory to our marriage, but his name, his will. I want to conclude with this. First Kings chapter 2. These are the words that David read. These are the words that David spoke to his son Solomon before he died. They're interesting words, and I think they're very helpful in talking about marriage. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, When David's time died, when David's time had died drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and whatever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David is basically telling his son, If you want to prosper as a king, follow the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord. And we read that as people who are not kings. We read that as people who are in marriages or about to be married, and we think that prosperity is about getting our perfect life. And David is saying that's not the way. The way to prosperity is faithfulness to God. Always, doesn't matter what time period, doesn't matter what war we're at, or who's on the president, who's president, it does not matter. Every time and space, faithfulness to God is the path to prosperity. The path to prosperity. Not your perfect life, not your perfect dream, not your perfect marriage, not your perfect spouse, not living in the perfect house, in the perfect place, having the perfect job. None of those things are real. A lot of times those things lead to chaos. They lead to brokenness. They lead to fracturing. They lead to sin. Be faithful to God. If you're married, learn from the story of Abraham and Jezebel. Don't build your own kingdom. Be about God's kingdom. If you're not married and you're, and you're seeking marriage, it's not about your kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. Get that now before you get into marriage. It's about God's will. It's about his kingdom. And marry someone who agrees with that. Who agrees it's not about the individual kingdom, but God's kingdom. Let's pray. So Lord, I so thank you for putting the story of Ahab and Jezebel in the Bible, Lord.